the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about this fascinating story out of McLean Bible Church and David Platt. And then we're going to get to hear from Christine Kane. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome here to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. We've got some special interviews in the show today. We're going to talk about them here in a couple minutes, but uh, you're going to get to hear today from Christine Kane, from Esau McCauley, just some unbelievable interviews that we were able to do with them that we're really uh, excited for you to do. But we're glad that you are with us today. Aubrey, good afternoon. How good are you afternoon, today? Good afternoon, Brian. I'm good. I want you to know that you said happy Wednesday, and it was so jolly that it just cheered me up. So thank you. I feel that. jolly today. Yeah, I can That's tell. what we're going to go with. I appreciate with. that. But then every now and then, we tackle stories that make us feel less Not jolly. Not as jolly. <laughs> yes, we do. So we touched on this yesterday when we had Tyler Huckabee on uh, from Relevant Magazine, and it's the story of David Platt, and he's the pastor of McLean Bible Church. And Aubrey, people could go and Google this or go to Christianity Today and read it in much more complexity. But let me give kind of the just kind of uh, thumbnail sketch of this story, because I do think this is an important story. McLean Bible Church is a big church in suburban Washington, D.C. It's in Virginia. And uh, their pastor is David Platt. Many of you would probably know about uh, David Platt. He wrote, uh, what was the name of his book? Radical? Uh, yes, that's the title of it. That kind of took over. Like That was like the book that yes, year, right? Was. Churches were reading it. And it was essentially this. How radically are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to reject the things from the American dream he talked about that aren't of Jesus? And it really shook up the church and it had quite the following. Well, David Platt, he he was a pastor then. He went on to take a different role at uh, the International Mission Board. And now he's back pastoring McLean Bible Church. And uh, David Platt, if you know anything about him, his theology is pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. But he is like, I'm going to preach Jesus. I'm going to call people to repentance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call people to follow Jesus with everything that they have. And so what that has led is... Naturally, in this last year, he's talked about race and social justice. He's talked about the role of the church, all of this stuff. He's talked about politics. Uh, he, he's been very bold. Uh, and now there is borderline like a bit of a split going on in his church because as they've been doing votes on elders and such, there's been kind of this groundswell that is trying to, quote unquote, protect the church uh, from kind of the woke ideology of people like David Platt. Mm. And when I first saw this, I was like, wokeness and David Platt. What in the <laughs> like, world? What, right. <laughs> what are we talking about? And so there's store in this story. Again, I would encourage you to Google it because there is there's a lawsuit going mm, on over so their sad. vote of elders. There's kind of like 80 percent of the church 
backing him, but 20% being really vocal. He had to get up at a meeting and kind of read some really painful emails Mm. he's received. All of this kind of stuff. And Aubrey, the reason I bring this up is not to go, man, can you believe what's going on at that church? Uh, But I think it's more to say, I worry that this is the this is the movement that's going to go on in a lot yeah, of churches yeah. and and around these topics of social justice, CRT, I like to use air quotes, wokeness, mm-hmm. uh, whereas if you if anyone's ever listened to David Platt, like he he is a lot of things. But at the top of that list, he's like. Uh, Southern Baptist gospel. Yeah, he's, not this progr- he's not a progressive, like left wing person at all. And that's what makes this story yeah. so interesting yeah. and so important. I think this is, like you said, not a progressive Christian, not a I'm going to use a term here people use. I don't. I'm going to use it anyway. He's not this social justice yeah. warrior. Yeah. He's not this guy who's banging the pulpit every day about politics and race and all the important things. He has not shied away from those things. But if you've ever read Radical and if you ever listened to David Platt's sermons, you know he is all about Jesus and the gospel, almost in some uncomfortable ways. Right. Like Radical's really uncomfortable. So, Aubrey, what do we make of the <laughs> fact that this is going on at the church of David Platt? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. This is a microcosm is what in a, of what is happening in all kinds of white or multi-ethnic evangelical churches right now. Anytime a pastor starts talking about social justice, they are totally attacked by people who say that it's, you know, the liberal Marxist Dems have come in, they're taking over the church. And I think what we forget is that we are called to love God and love neighbor. And and all that Platt and these other pastors are doing is try to remind us to love our ethnic minority neighbors who have been really, really hurting since the death of George Floyd. And I mean, hurting for years before that, but as things have come, you know, more and more into culture and the mainstream conversation. And I, uh, I'm sad. I mean, I think this is so messed up on so many levels. One that there's all of this like power mongering happening around the elder vote that churches are being litigious towards their own. I, it, I'm, I gotta pray for him. Like, I feel like this is the enemy at his finest destroying the church. And unfortunately, I think we're gonna see a lot of church splits over the next several years because of this very issue. And it is not good. Yeah. And I think that's the important part of this is I too, uh, I think there's, there's going to be some church splitting going mm-hmm. on, big churches, small yep. churches. And that makes me sad. I think it's going to fracture in the same way that our politics have yep. fractured. And again, if you're like out there going, no way, Google David Platt McLean Bible Church and just read the story of what's going on. It could possibly end up in court. Yep. And you're just like, uh, what is going on right now? And And I think it becomes important when you see when you hear people, okay, this is my own opinion, but when you hear people calling David Platt, Matt Chandler, John Piper woke, <laughs> like you're like, whoa, we've got there, there's been some sort of shift here yeah. because, yeah. uh, and, and it, I think that it bears watching in small churches and big churches. I think, uh, I don't think, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. Now, Tyler Huckabee yesterday gave some hope. Mm-hmm. 
but I, I don't know, Aubrey, maybe you disagree with me, but I think it, there's this could get worse before hopefully it gets better. I think it could definitely, I think it will get worse before it gets better, but I think it's a call for all of us to be on our knees praying for the church, praying the enemy away, and just remembering like who we are meant to be, like our witness yeah. is at stake here, and unity in the church. You can disagree and remain in unity, and this is an example of disagreeing, but being disunited, and it is not biblical, holy, or good for the church or for the gospel. Oh, amen. It's an important story, and I think it bears watching. Go check that out at Christianity Today. You can read that all there. Well, Aubrey, uh, uh, we want to tell people about something really special that's coming up because you were at grad school the last week or two with some amazing people, yes. and you we use the opportunity for you to interview some amazing, amazing people. Why don't you tell us quickly about that? Yeah, and we're going to share some of those interviews today and over the next couple of days, but I got to sit down with some of our guest professors and some of my classmates like Christine Kane, best-selling author, speaker, activist, Esau McCauley, who's a best-selling author and a professor, Sharon Hottie Miller, who's an author and a, a, she spoke to our class. And I got to sit down with Ann Voskamp, which many people know as one of the most best-selling authors of all time. And so um, <laughs> these interviews were really special. I got to do them in the basement of the Billy Graham Center, where we talk a little bit about the Propel program at Wheaton that I was a part of, but also some of the ministry that these incredible people are doing. Yeah, and so we're really excited for that. So when we come back, you're going to hear the first of those interviews that Aubrey had the opportunity to do, sitting down with best-selling author, as you said, speaker, founder of Propel Women and co-founder of the A21 campaign. You all know who that is. That is Christine Kane. You're going to hear her next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm your host, Aubrey Sampson. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're doing something a little bit different. I'm not in my regular studio. I'm actually at the bottom of the Billy Graham Center of all places. I'm a graduate student here at Wheaton in the Propel program, getting my master's in evangelism and leadership. And I have had some of my very special friends, professors, classmates joining me. And right now I'm privileged to be sitting across the table from none other than Miss Christine Kane herself. Hi, Chris. Hey, Aubrey. Man, we are down in, in the <laughs> underbelly of we the Billy Graham are, Center. I mean, like, no one no, we could We could get locked down here and no one would find I, us. I said we are, the, we are in the <laughs> safest place on earth, no matter what happens right now. That's true. There could be a tornado. There yeah. could be like some event and we're fine. We're fine. No one would know. We'd be stuck down here, though. That would not be good. If you don't know Chris Kane, she is the founder of Propel Women, the co-founder of the A21 campaign. She's an author, speaker, activist, evangelist. What else are you? You're all kinds of things. Church planter, mom. Yeah, I've got two wife. great girls. You have two awesome great husband. Girls. I do say he's the most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth. <laughs> I love that. He probably loves that. He too. loves it yeah. every minute. <laughs> yeah, love that. Um, okay, Chris. You and I are both part of the Propel Women cohort at Wheaton College. We're about to graduate. We're almost done, which is crazy. It is like unbelievable. Four years later, this is like literally our second life. We have 24 hours left. That's it. That's it. And so we're sort of recording this between classes, yeah, and I'm are. thinking, we literally have 24 hours left. Isn't it nuts? Of okay. class time. Of class yeah. time. Okay, so what led you to even start this? What was the dream in your heart when this 
when you even began thinking about this program? Well, one of my big dreams was helping you Americans go from saying class to class. <laughs> and so it's just, it was just then you went class time and I went, oh, wow. Okay. Class, so class, wait, that's it. it. Class, 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 class time. Class, and class. so that was like goal number one. Obviously, I didn't succeed. Did succeed so a lot of mine was, was, I was just seeing, you know, I'm a, a little bit older than all of you guys. I feel like I could be your mum uh, or big sister, <laughs> big, sister. Uh, big sister. For some of the girls, I could definitely be their mum. There is true. no denying that. <laughs> so it was, I wanted to see an environment that, you know, valued theological education and training. The world's rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. And of right. course, I'm a, an activist. It's got to work on the ground. I, I just didn't want to add information to our data bank. It had to be a course that had practical application, yeah. no matter if you're a corporate CEO, if you're an entrepreneur, um, if you're in ministry or you're a stay-at-home mother, right. I wanted what is something that every woman, regardless of age, race, culture, could step into this, take this material and go, I can put this into my world tomorrow. So, of course, that's, that's me. I'm always a practitioner. Right, so right. it's going to and, – and everything we do at Propel, it was, it was based out of um, the scripture where Jesus says, you know, uh, look up to the hills that, you know, the, the fields are ripe for harvest. Mm-hmm. The harvest is plentiful. The labourers are few. That's right. So whatever we do, whether it's any kind of training and development like this or any kind of um, event, it is with the goal – of training and equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Yeah. So that's why an evangelism slash leadership course would be great because the world is shifting so rapidly. And I've been doing evangelistic work for 30 years yeah. and it is changing so quickly. Wow. I think I've got a 15 year old and a 19 year old. So it matters to me. You know, if I, if I want, it's not a matter of do I want to stay relevant in ministry? Do I just want to stay relevant as a Jesus follower mm-hmm. as I go into that's this good. next season? Yeah. Period. That's right. what the right. issue is. So Absolutely. this had nothing to do with. People were saying to me, well, you know, Chris, you've got a global ministry. You've got offices in 19 countries. You don't need to do this, whatever that means. It's like I don't, I don't need it to enhance the ministry, although it certainly will. Sure. But as a Jesus follower uh, with children and hopefully, you know, one day grandchildren, mm-hmm. it matters to me. Yeah. What 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 um, what does evangelism look like in the world in which we live? What does effective leadership look like? Okay. And so in those spaces, of course, um, Women have often been in the evangelism space, not often acknowledged in the leadership space. So I thought it was so good to have those things together. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing so many shifts happen that to see women trained with a biblical foundation to step into way more public spaces in leadership across the board and especially in church-based leadership as well. That's my personal passion. Um, This was perfect. And of course, I'm I'm a bit of an introvert with a strong extrovert bent. So Mm. if I'm going to study, I'm not doing it by myself. It's like, (laughs) of course, I've got Anne Voskett. I call my friends. I'm like, you are doing this with me. And And it's like, we're going to find an excuse to be together. And so we have these, you know, five cohorts with 20 women in them and it's growing. And um, as I go and visit the other cohorts, they're all just great friends. Yeah. Who doesn't want to stay? Chicks love, we love to do yeah, stuff just together. Like doing life with your <laughs> yeah, friends in the cohorts. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so amazing. So, okay. Do you feel like there's a, I mean, you said right now there's five, there's six, there's actually seven. Literally, so yes. listeners, if God is putting on your heart, hey, you want to go back to school, this is the way to do it. You can actually go to Wheaton.edu to find out more. But Chris, as you're dreaming about this sort of army of women mm-hmm. that are being raised up and trained and sent out, do you have a, yeah, what is your biggest hope, I suppose? You know, there's a lot, Psalm 68, 11, um, you know, it says that there's a mighty throng of women that will carry the word. Mm. And it's, and Hebrew scholars, you know, Jewish scholars say that um, in, in some of the Bibles, the word woman 
was changed to people. It was something a little bit more generic. Mm. Um, but scholars would say that that word is there is this resounding, mighty throng. I, lo- I love that word, throng. Yes, throng. It just sounds beautiful. It does. It's um, and it's mine is that that we women like we always have, will carry the word. Again, I'm not putting this in a box. I'm not saying a woman that works in a church. I'm not saying a woman that works in a corporation. Um, I'm not saying a woman that is single or a woman that is married. I'm saying all women, married, single, children, no children, stay at home, working outside of the home, whatever. I want to dispel all that and go, listen, the thing we've got in common is that we're women. And, of course, my two heroes, um, Aubrey, Biblical women heroes are um, Joanna, the wife of Chusa in um, mm. Luke 8, because she's a married woman that obviously traveled with a single itinerant minister <laughs> and right. funded his ministry yeah. out of her own means. That's so right. I'm like, on 50 levels, and I used to always say the patron saint of Propel is Joanna, the wife of Chusa. <laughs> and I was at an extremely conservative institution when I launched Propel. And I remember putting that scripture up and you could just see everyone freaking out and I, and because it says, um, and many other women traveled mm-hmm. with Jesus. Right. And I said, who's heard a sermon on the And there were 15,000 people in the arena. Not one hand was raised. I said, who's ever heard a sermon on this? And, um, you know, I said, wow. I, I don't know the Greek, Hebrew or Aramaic. I'm not that smart, but I, I can read English. Right. And this right here says that Jesus had ma- and many other women um, that funded his ministry out of their own means, traveled with him. And so I thought that's the kind of chick that I like. And, of course, mm, um, the woman that I have most resonated with always is for many reasons, but the woman at the well because – Number one, she's unnamed, and I, so my yeah. birth certificate says unnamed, so it's always very meaningful yeah. to me that all the unnamed women of the Bible, it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, I feel like one of them. You connect um, to yeah. So I was, so she was unnamed, but mm. um, the fact that immediately upon having a revelation of who Jesus Christ was, first thing she did, no one had to tell her, no one said she couldn't do it or could do it, or yeah. she just went back to her town and had a revival. Love it. So, of course, I feel like that's my whole life. It's like, <laughs> you know, and, and then it's like people can look at me and go, you know, I perceive her to be yeah. not really smart chick, but but I know she's been with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's like Amen. I I sort of, that is very much my modus operandi in, in ministry and life. And so I feel like Propel um, – meets all of those women, so whoever she is, the unnamed mm. outcast, which mm. a huge part of my life was that, wow. to the incredibly well-resourced and connected, yeah. which more of my life is that now. Yeah. So I go, I yeah. feel like both women, because you don't have to be any one woman forever. It's mm-hmm. like the, the Lord, um, you know, I think Propel meets all of those women. So I love that. It does meet all of those. I would just yeah. affirm that, that Propel does meet all of those women. This program in particular does. You can learn more about Chris and her books at ChristineKane.com. Connect with her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And, of course, learn more about the Propel Women cohort at Wheaton College at Wheaton.edu. We talked a little bit about something incredible that's happening at A21. Can you tell our listeners first what A21 is and then about this Freedom Summit that's coming up? Oh Yes, and, of course, this is one of my greatest passions. Um, A21 is an anti-human trafficking organization where our goal is to abolish slavery everywhere forever. And it sounds uh, grandiose, but I'm going to invite all of you to join us at our Global Freedom Summit that's coming up very soon. And I think you're going to put all the information in the show notes. Yes, yeah. everything will um, be on there for you. Because um, you're going to find out how even practically 
uh, we're going to show you how this can be done. It's not just, I mean, yes, it's a faith goal, but it actually can be done in our lifetime. And so um, I'm excited about that. But, you know, we are concerned with every phase of the process, Aubrey. We help to reach the vulnerable, to rescue the victim and to restore the survivor. Mm -hmm. And so we have uh, 19 offices around the world and um, freedom, freedom centers around the world. And we've got one in Charlotte here in North America, in North Carolina, and we're building one currently in Dallas. That's awesome. And so I'm excited about that. But we, so we're involved at every process. Um, we have huge prevention and awareness campaigns because, you know, um, to simplify it, I've always thought it's one thing to send an ambulance to the bottom of a cliff to pick up people, and we will always do that forever. Yeah. But it's a whole other thing to put some nets at the top of the cliff to go, Amen. you don't have to fall off in the first place. Oh, and so across so the world, that's why we're so involved in so many different um, prevention, awareness. Um, really dealing with this, uh, you know, within systems around the world that enable trafficking to continue mm-hmm. to happen. And so wow. um, helping to dismantle some of that. And it's amazing um, the difference that it's making in countries um, when you can just make it a lot more difficult for a trafficker to actually traffic a human being. Isn't that the rates go down, yes. I'm imagining, Chris, that you're fighting against that kind of evil and, and trying to make such a big difference that there's spiritual attack that comes against that. Well, totally. Because, I mean, it's evil. You know, the scripture says that uh, we did our flesh against, a war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Yeah. And I'm like, even if you don't believe this stuff, just be involved in helping to abolish trafficking for what, one week. I promise you, you will start to believe in this. Like, and okay, you'll go, okay. And that's like, you know, I, some of my friends and our, my colleagues that are just like, you know, have come in as sort of, uh, wow, this stuff's not real. And then like two days in, they're like, oh my gosh. I there really is evil and there really is darkness. And um, I say that to people, people that don't really believe. I go, oh, no, the levels of depravity that I've seen, what people are capable of wow, doing to other Chris. people, to children, to, mm. you know, we have a, a young child, Aubrey, that's 18 months in our care with a broken pelvis. What what people do to people? Yeah, I know. Any mother, you're just like your heart breaks. And so most of the reports that I read and we have more survivors in our care now after a global pandemic than ever before in Praise the history the of A21. But it just shows you how rampant trafficking mm. continued to be even the while the world the was pandemic. locked down. Absolutely. Wow. Evil doesn't cease. That's wow. that's the whole point is wow. it's real. And sometimes, you know, I'm reading these reports and I'm like, how, how could you not think there is mm. evil? This is so evil. I mean, I dare to use the word demonic because it, it is. is it's, it's just so... Yeah. It's so evil. So we um, have seen amazing, um, amazing, amazing breakthroughs, like really in in many, many different nations. But it takes all of us. It's going to take every person listening to this because if people can get overwhelmed, I mean, numbers are so numbing and dehumanizing and desensitizing. Um, And you can ignore suffering if it's nameless or faceless, if it's just, if I say there's 40 million slaves, we're eating a sandwich while we're listening to this radio program and just going, that means nothing. Um, But the minute you put a name and a face on that, Mm. it changes everything, like everything. And I think we certainly as Jesus followers, um, you know, need to not just think of statistics, but think, what can I do? And most of us think I can't do anything because of the enormity of the problem. Right, that's true. And and now when I first felt a nudge to do something, I'm like, how could I? At the time I was living in Australia, I was 40 years old. I'd just given birth to my second child. And can I just say, Aubrey, when you pop out a kid at 40, you're (laughs) 
want a purple heart. You're not looking to You'll start anything. I'm like, yeah, I've got no. Everyone's no. like, did you dream of starting something? I'm like, honey, I was trying to survive I at 40. Literally and here I am through. standing in an airport in Thessaloniki, Greece, looking at all of these, waiting for my bags to come to speak at a conference. And I was seeing all of these um, posters of missing women and children. Mm. And went on to find out they're the alleged victims of human trafficking. And I guess it's so so sad to say that that was about 2007. The fact that I did not know it still existed. I I did not know human trafficking was a thing in 2007. Like I, my friend that works for the UN, if she really didn't give me the data, I'm not sure I would have believed her. I would have thought we've had the Emancipation Proclamation Act. We've had the Freedom from Slavery Act. William Wilberforce, we're done. (laughs) Like, you know, like literally this is like we're done. And um, and then when I felt the nudge, mm. Christine, I want you to do something. And really, you know, I think you'll like the story. Perhaps, you know, even our listeners will think I was – so I got my bags. I was so disturbed by these posters. Um, so I'm in my hotel room in Greece preparing a message. And the message I was preparing to speak to the women the next day was on um, – from the book of Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. As I'm preparing my message, minding my own business, I've ha- had a child. My husband and I traveled all around the world doing stuff and – I'm expecting the Lord to, you know, pat my shoulder like because I'm awesome. And, um, you know, here I am. I'm traveling the world for the sake of the gospel. And then um, just in my heart, as I'm preparing, thinking about questions for the women, I just sort of felt this nudge like, Christine, you think you're the Samaritan in this text, don't you? Uh, and, of course, I'm thinking like, yes. Yeah, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm on the other side right. of the world and I'm here to <laughs> proclaim the gospel. And um, and the, the nudge was like, no, you're a little bit more like the priest and the Levite. Oh. Um, you are so busy going to your next Christian event that you are seeing something or someone on the side of the road and you see them as an interruption to your ministry rather than the object of your ministry. Uh, The Samaritan, Chris, was um, as busy as the Levite and the priest. They were all on their way to somewhere else. The only difference between the religious people and the Samaritan was that he crossed the street and was yeah. willing to be interrupted. Yeah. And then I just felt this sense that mm-hmm. most of us have confused um, sympathy and empathy. What, what we think is because we cry at a sad video about yeah. a sad global situation, yeah. we think uh, that means I'm just so empathetic. Mm-hmm. But compassion is not compassion until you're willing to cross the street, Amen. roll up your sleeves and give so up your good. own time, your own yeah. talent, your own treasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really that moment mm-hmm. where I would say the seed for A21 mm-hmm. Uh, was birth because mm-hmm. as I was looking at those posters, there was a little girl. My my daughter I just given birth to. Her name was Sophia. Is is Sophia? And as I was looking um, at the posters, there was a little girl, and her name was Sophia. And of course, you know anyone you just have a baby. I mean, you're, you're already emotional yes, and hormonal, yes. so you've got all the things happening. And I just start bawling because it's like. And I would say in that moment, I went from um, looking at someone's missing child Mm. to seeing my own daughter. And that would be the difference because when you look, you can look away, but when you see, you can never unsee. Mm. And that would be the moment. And my heart is Mm. through the global summit that we're doing, the Freedom Summit, um, that people will begin to see and see with God's eyes and God's heart. It's one thing to look at the stats, but to see how God sees, it changes everything. If you had told that girl that now, well, you know, it's 13 years since A21 started, 14 years since that incident, that we today would have officers in 19 countries that we would have, you know, since hundreds of traffickers put in jail, thousands of people rescued, I'd never have believed you. Right, right. And look at what God has done. Totally. Oh, amen. I love that. Chris, um, where can people find out more about A21 and get involved? Yeah, a21.org. Very simple. 
Chris, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time. I always love talking to you. Yeah, I'm going to become a regular you. on your show. Oh, yeah, you'll be a friend yes, of the show. That's, that's what we call you. And sometimes we have best friends of the show, so we'll see. We'll I'm see moving. I'm moving to BFF status. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if you can earn your way there. You can find out more about Chris and her books and her ministry at christinecane.com. Of course, you can find out more about the Propel Women cohort at Wheaton College at wheaton.edu. And uh, we're so thankful that you've been here today. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, thanks for taking that time to sit down with Christine yeah, Kane and so others. Fun. Absolutely. And she's just amazing. Isn't she awesome? We've had her on the show before, and we hope to have her on the show again. Uh, but she is a uh, worldwide leader yes. uh, in, in stuff going on in the Christian faith. And so we'd encourage you to get to know Christine Kane. One of the kind of evergreen topics you and I talk about a lot is Christians and social mm-hmm. media. Uh, and not just social media, but just in general, how do we interact with people, yeah. whether it be online or in person? But it tends to be online more than anything, specifically people that we disagree with. I, I've even seen it on my Twitter feed with like a sports r- reporter and uh, somebody like uh, somebody who writes something about a team and somebody tweets, uh, you know, ripping them. And the guy writes back, you know, comments back. Nice to see pastor in your bio. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or nice. To, why is it? Or like, I remember seeing this one a couple of weeks ago. Why is it always the people with Bible verses in their mm, bio? Like someone else wrote wow. that and you're like, oh, man. And so we, we have to regularly have the conversation and the thought, what does it look like uh, for us to be able to interact uh, with gentleness and mm. respect? The Christianity Today, they brought up this topic of answering with gentleness and respect and what it looks like to have good faith interactions online. Uh, Two-part question for you, Aubrey. Okay. How do you, what is kind of your uh, lens through how you interact with people online. And you're a little bit more of a public figure, author yeah. or speaker. Uh, so have you been at the, at the, um, at the receiving end of this mm-hmm. online where people interact without gentleness and respect? You know, I, um, maybe a year or two might have been even two years ago. I posted something about, I was preaching at a church and I was just like, Hey, join me at, you know, whatever church it was. And I had a series of, trolls just come after me, mostly because I was a woman using the word preaching. And I understand there are different viewpoints about that. That's not Mm -hmm. the point I'm trying to say here. But um, they really attacked me to the point where I, um, and I'll say it was a mistake. I made the mistake of trying to defend myself. Kevin got Mm. in trying to defend me. And ultimately, I actually, Chris Kane, who we just had on, she ended up texting me saying, you know what? Stop feeding the trolls. And so I was like, mm. that is great advice. There's no, she said, there is no reason to even engage. It takes you off of your mission, which is to mm. keep your eyes on Jesus. And yeah. so I, I would say um, in reacting, I have had to learn to just like die to self and go, Lord, you know what? You see what's happening. I don't need to respond. And I don't get a lot of hate because I'm not a massive public figure. But when it happens, just to ignore it and pray and move forward, you know, knowing like Mm -hmm. who I am and what I'm called to do. I think we have to keep our mission at heart. And then I just tend not to go after people on social media. Like I, there are times when I'm tempted to, and I feel like thankfully the Holy Spirit just goes, Obs, nope, 
Like don't even, if you know, you can be angry about things. You can call people to task without having to tear them down publicly. And I think one of the things you and I have talked about, Brian, like if you're not going to say it to somebody across the dinner table from you or across the coffee shop from you, it should not be going online. Now that said, I will say things about issues that I disagree with or injustices all the time, but I just tend to avoid going after God's you know, human beings, his sons and daughters, because mm. I don't think it's dignifying or godly. What about you, Brian? Yeah, like I said, I, I've not had people come after me, mostly because I don't also post yeah, very often. Yeah. And if you're going to go after me, you're probably going after a picture of like my kids. <laughs> <laughs> like, then you're going to defend. <laughs> then you're going you're gonna to come back with something. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, you and I have talked before about the pain we have felt when somebody from our church oh, says something, whether about us or the church, good. and you're like, yeah. you, you literally have my phone number right. in your phone. Right. Like, Call me. Why is this? Or when you see people within your church go at it with each yeah, other. it's awful. In really painful. Yeah, like it's so disheartening yeah. uh, and so discouraging. I don't – I rarely I rarely post uh, – I mean, I should say I rarely comment on anybody anyway, uh, but I've – you know, the next time I comment something controversial or like trying to stir the pot will be the first yeah. time because I just don't have the appetite for that. I, in fact, uh, this is a little off the subject, but last week I took Facebook off my phone. Oh, did you I really? How come? Done. I just, it was, it was becoming too much of a time sucker for yeah. me a little yeah. bit, but also I just get discouraged when mm. I look at it. Like it's not that much of a place anymore. Mm where you just see pictures of people having fun yeah. or like making jokes yeah. or doing this or that. It it feels like I was constantly being drawn into like kind of things I didn't want to see from people or they were trying to sell me stuff. Yeah. And you're just kind of like, oh, I mean, I'm still on Twitter and yeah. stuff. But um, this idea at Christianity Today of having good faith online, mm. uh, the author here says good faith is not the same as positivity. It's not niceness. It's not precisely the same as honesty, though certainly they're related. To deal in good faith is to speak truthfully and read generously, yeah. giving grace for real confusion because, quote, Proverbs sixteen twenty one, gracious words promote instruction. Mm. And then she goes on to say, we show good faith, like in First Peter 3, when we don't, quote, repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Wow. Understanding some of those verses, she goes on to use verses in Proverbs about mockery, First Corinthians 13 about love. As we take a biblical view, Aubrey, of our social media interactions, and you read this about good faith, how does that kind of form, in your opinion, how all of us should interact with people we know and don't know online? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of something that Karen Swallow Pryor has said on our show before. If you don't know who she is, she's a professor. She's a great, you know, Twitter follow. And she has said on our show before that even talking about reading books, that we do charitable reading. So we assume that the author has the best in mind. And I think that's a general rule that we're talking about here is when we're engaging with people like, let's assume the best. Let's assume grace. Let's assume that we may not be understanding everything perfectly because of the medium. Let's um, remember that they are a dignified child of God made in his mm. image and respond charitably to what they're saying. Even if we disagree, I th we've talked about this before. You can disagree and still have civil discourse. You yeah. can disagree and still be kind. Um, but to repay evil for evil or to just insult people really is not the way of Jesus. 
Yeah, it's the old Jim Dennison book. Mm-hmm. We've had Jim yeah, on a lot right. of times when he said, respectfully, I disagree. And his entire book is about reclaiming civility, not just culturally, but in the church. Yeah. And I think this becomes so important. And I think Christine Kane made a good point to you, too. Uh, not all battles need to be That's fought. it. Not everything. You know what? Go for a walk mm-hmm. or just turn off. I would encourage some of you out there, if you feel like you're just mired in like social media and it ta- it sucks up a lot of your time and you struggle with it, take a break yes. and see what it does to your Good. soul. Uh, and, and just see. Yeah. Like I said, uh, see what it does. Go to your outside. Soul. Well, take a walk. Like you said, remember the real world around you. That's right. That's right. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about more about social media. Does it even matter who you follow? We're going to have that conversation next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how are we friends with people who we have large spiritual disagreements with? And we're joined by Dr. Esau McCauley to talk about his book, Reading While Black. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Wednesday afternoon. I'm so glad that you're here with us. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we hope you're having a wonderful day. Okay, Brian, you and I talk a lot about civil, um, you know, disagreement. We we just talked about how do we uh, be gentle and kind on social media with people that we may have different perspectives from. But sometimes, you know, there are really large theological debates, like right. um, sexuality is one, like right. um, abortion is one. And when we just even issues about like women in ministry is one. Mm-hmm. I think a important question for us to talk about as Christians is how do we remain friends with people with whom we have really deep and large spiritual disagreements when like both of us know where we stand and we're not budging. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. when we are just on opposite sides of belief, what do you do? Um, so, Mm. uh, you know, let me just throw that out to you. What do you think about that? So, uh, this would not have been an issue like 10 years ago, but I think culturally we need to define what we're talking about with friends, Mm, right? Are we talking about interesting, you know, a Facebook friend I'm online, I'm following on Twitter, like kind of this online friend or my actual friends. Yeah. So, because uh, I do think on things like Twitter and Facebook, it's healthy to have people who don't agree with you all the time. Now, you got to see what it's doing to your soul. What effect is it having on you? Uh, but we often talk about the echo chamber here, yeah. right? If I only read people who agree with me, not just theologically, but politically and in every way, that's not necessarily the best thing for me. Now, if I'm constantly fighting them online probably also not the best thing for me. But uh, I think there's something about that. Now, when it comes to actual real life friendships and being with people, I think the key becomes to not ignore the things that um, that we disagree with, but not not base our friendship upon mm. them. Right. Like like Aubrey, if if pers- if my neighbor say and I disagree about, um, you know, um, same sex marriage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And every time we get together, that's what we talk about. That's not really a it's friendship. It's not a friendship. That's right. Exactly. Now, I could be friends with that person and we can agree to disagree. And at times when appropriate and when it comes up, have those conversations. Those are healthy to have mm-hmm. those debates. But 
But if every time we get together, it's to sit on the back porch just to yell at each other about politics, right? He's a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Let's yell about this. And he said, that's not, that's just, that's not healthy. And that's not helpful. I think actually when I, I am, um, a friend of somebody who is of a different faith, of a different political background, of, um, you know, even maybe they're a Christian, but a different, they're more progressive in their Mm -hmm. theology, whatever else it might be. Uh, I think being honest with each other, but, or here's a big one. I think this is even more important to talk about within families. Yes. Uh, because that we've heard too many stories of this tearing families apart right now. I think it's to base our relationships much more foundationally, uh, not on those things, but on the things that, uh, that we really love about mm. each other and that bind us together. I think that becomes important. And when we are able to do that, I think it's really healthy to have relationships with people who believe and think things differently than us. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of Paul, like becoming all things to all people. And I think there is a place in a time when certainly we may find ourselves um, disagreeing with friends, neighbors, even our fellow churchgoers about some of these deeper theological issues. But I think, like you said, what matters is not so much what the disagreement is, but the way we disagree, that we need to honor the Lord, honor the relationship, honor the other person, even when we think they are like sinfully wrong. Like, because I think a lot Mm -hmm. of it does come down to an issue of like, no, what you're saying is good, is actually sinful. And that you can feel passionate about that as a Christian. But the reality is it's not necessary. I mean, it's our job to speak truth. It's our job to love people. It's not our job to convince people to be where we are. And so Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm thinking of an issue that Kevin and I disagreed with for a very long time in our marriage. And it got to the point with us where we realized we are not going to debate our way through this. Like, it's just not (laughs) going to work. We get angry. We end up not even fighting about the thing we're fighting about, but we're talking about something else. And what we ended up doing was just literally like, it was off the table. We cannot talk about it. But at night, we would pray about it and we would pray for each other. Kevin would go to sleep and I would pray over him to be convinced to my side and he would do the same thing to me, you know? (laughs) But I mean, that's kind of a joke. Like, obviously, we need to see the plank in our own eye. But I do think sometimes these issues, like you're not going to sway the person. You can pray that you see where you're wrong. You can pray that the Holy Spirit will convict them where they're wrong. Yeah. Not in a like, I'm better than you way, but so that the Spirit of God is just speaking to all of us and then move forward in love and dignity. And like you said, like, don't sit on the back porch and disagree. Just like enjoy the relationship that you have with one another. Yeah, absolutely. I could you mind me asking, like, did do you guys still fight nope, about we this? No, don't or fight this- about it. In fact, I mean, this is a funny example because I ended up being on like the quote unquote winning side of this. But <laughs> my husband really, uh, over time, I watched the spirit of God move him in such a way that we became unified on an issue that I was already just, I was just already there. Like I had already thought through it and prayed through it and was there. And I watched the spirit of God move him. And that has happened both ways. Like obviously I have moved sure. towards work, but I, it wasn't because I convinced him. Was it because I said anything that was compelling? It was literally because we stopped, we prayed, and God did the work. I didn't have mm. to do it. And so I think that's a good word for all of us. Um, it was clearly about who's going to do the dishes each that's, night. That and, was our big uh, theological debate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, So, Brian, uh, 
switching topics here, you know that last was it last week or was it two weeks ago? I'm so thrown off by things, but I had it my, was like ha- it was two weeks ago, but then also half of half last of week. Last so that's week. Why okay, it. that's why it's throwing. Me. Well, it was my final week of grad school at Wheaton College, and this was an incredible experience. My final class, we had in we had amazing. We had Beth Moore come in. We had Esau McCauley there. We had Dr. Sharon Hottie Miller. We had Christine Kane. We had Ann Voskamp. These incredible folks were taking classes. Derwin and Vicki Gray were there taking classes or teaching the classes. And so I had the privilege of partnering with Wheaton College and the Common Good and pulling some of these incredible speakers and students aside to talk with them, get some interviews for the common good. And we've already shared my conversation with Christine Kane, but next up, we're actually going to share my conversation with Dr. Esau McCauley. Um, he's the author of a really incredible book called Reading While Black, and it is so hopeful. It is such a word for such a time as this. Um, he's an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. And um, stick around because we're going to be sharing my conversation with Dr. McCauley as soon as we get back. And it is when you're not going to want to miss this really good one. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I'm your host, Aubrey Sampson. Thanks for joining us today. We're doing something a little bit unusual today. Instead of being in the Salem studio, I am in the basement of the Billy Graham Center because I am part of the Propel cohort at the Wheaton College Graduate School. And I am joined this week by some of the very special professors and guests that we have teaching us this week. In my final class today, I am so honored, excited to be joined by Dr. Esau McCauley. Dr. McCauley is an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. That's fancy, Dr. McCauley. <laughs> He's also the author of an incredible book, which you must purchase today, called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Esau, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, we are so glad to have you. Hey, before we dive into your book, can you share a little bit more about yourself so our listeners can get to know you? Well, I am married. I have four children. Uh, well, my wife had them, but like that goes <laughs> hours. <laughs> how, how old are your kids? Our I don't kid, know my my um, seven year old just had a birthday, so we have a five and seven year old. My ten year old is turning eleven in two weeks, so she's already claiming eleven. <gasps> nice, and then nice. a thirteen year old. I have an eleven year old. Well, I have a fourteen, eleven, and nine, and my eleven year old is about to be twelve, and she's it's out, also they, claiming twelve. Yeah, they start to claim yeah, early. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So from Alabama, Southerner in the Midwest. Oh, wow. That could be a whole conversation we might need to have. Wow. Um, Okay. I do want to dive into your book, uh, Reading While Black. But before that, can you tell us a little bit about what, how did you get from Alabama to here? Why, what are you doing at Wheaton? Of all places. <laughs> I mean, that's a 20-minute question. Yeah. So my wife was in the military, so we traveled around after we got married. So um, we've lived, since we've been married, in Vermont, Virginia, Okinawa, Japan, wow. Florida, Scotland, Rochester, New York, and then Wheaton. So, Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to tell you what we did in all of those places, but that's... We got to Wheaton by way of Scotland, by way of Rochester, New York. Unbelievable. That's it. You'll have to write a book about your travels next. That'll have to be your, your I am writing a memoir that, <gasps> no tells, that tells about um, kind of uh, our life up until this point. Okay. Okay. Look at that. I feel like I'm prophetic because I yes. just said that. That's awesome. Okay. Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Yes. What was the inspiration for the book? Well, it's funny because every now and then the, the, the subject is in the title. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, <laughs> so what I really wanted to do, and this was back in 2016, 2017, when I first started to get the ideas around the book, is there was a lot of protest around injustice in um, America. And there were people wondering whether or not Christianity has something relevant to say to the issues of the day. Mm. And what I wanted to show was that you can read the Bible as God's word to us for our good. And because of what you believe about the Bible, contend for these issues. Mm. And I want to say that this wasn't new, that historically African-Americans have gone to the Bible and seen in the Bible a God who's a friend and not an enemy. That's right. what's called African-American biblical interpretation that's an exercise in hope. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do was give people hope. I mean, there were tons of books, and this is fine. They were telling everybody how horrible it was yeah. and how difficult the world was yeah. and how we were all doomed and, you know, all of those things. Yeah. I want to say, okay, let's take it for granted that there's these problems in the world. Okay. How does God speak a word of hope through his scriptures? Mm. And how historically have African-Americans found hope mm. in those scriptures? And so that's what I was really attempting to do was to really point people towards um, a hopeful way of um, reading the Bible that didn't wish away hard questions, but work through the hard questions to hope. To a place of hope. Yeah. And so when I said reading while black, I was trying to say, is to like, this is how black people have read the Bible. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people misunderstand that. Um because they think that what I'm saying is that like your black skin causes you to read Bible in one way and your white skin calls you to read mm. the Bible another way. That's not what I was trying to get at. Yeah. What I was trying to get at is this idea that we live in a racialized world. Yes. And that black people and white people and Asian people and Latina and Latino people are treated differently because of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. And those those that treatment gives rise to certain experiences. Mm-hmm. And those experiences are things that we bring to the biblical text. And so African-Americans, because of our experiences, have had to say, as a group, what does the Bible say about slavery, about how we're treated? Yeah. And so when I talk about black Bible reading, I'm talking about the ways in which black people who've had certain experiences have gone to these texts to look for hope. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I mean when I say reading while black, African-American, biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. And I know this is too much for one question, but you asked me, so you're going to get one more piece. No, I love it. Keep going. Exercise. Exercise. Like, I don't like to exercise. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes my <laughs> right, knee hurts. Right, my back right. hurts. But the point is, you got to get up and do it because if you don't, you're going to die. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or you're going to be unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. And so when I said exercise and hope, I mean, mm-hmm. the the process of just get, like getting out of the bed and going to the gym. It's like the same thing. Getting out of the bed when everything would tempt you to give up mm-hmm. and turning to the Bible. It's an exercise. It's a practice. Yeah. So I want to say is... Here's how the practice of Bible reading has brought hope to black people so good. throughout our history. Um, it's just interesting thinking about some of the things I've been learning this week in my Propel cohort here at Wheaton is that for some reason people think the Bible isn't contextualized or contextualizable. But what you're saying is just kind of a, coming at it from an understanding of like, no, it has been contextualized for all of us. Yeah, actually, I think that people do know. They just don't. They just don't like it. Maybe that's so. It. Like, so an example yeah. is you think you have you're getting ready to talk to a youth group. Yeah. And you take this Bible and you go, okay, how does this text speak to the particular circumstances that are going on with 15 to 18 year olds? Yeah. Now, what I want you to think about for a second, and for the listeners to say, once you begin to have that idea in your mind, and then you open up the Bible, what you do is. 
you see things that are actually there that you didn't notice before. You go, oh, I never thought about how this passage speaks to this issue until I'm thinking about it. And so once you begin to think about your audience, it causes you to not make up truth, but see truth that you didn't notice. It's the same thing. If you, if you, if you trust me, wedding sermons, people are always asking, (laughs) how does this passage speak to marriage? And it's shocking how often things do speak to marriage. They weren't written for marriages. And so we are used to contextualization. Mm. What is scares people is when you say, how does this contextualize to a black context? Mm. Then we start to get really nervous. But we understand that like, Anyone who's passed it in two different places, you you passed it in a rural area and then you to the city. Yeah. The same Bible, sermons change. Yep. And what I'm what I, what I really want people to understand is it's not the creation of meaning by the changing of context. That's good. It is the noticing of meanings that your context may have excluded from you previously. Yeah. That's good. And so that's what I really think that we're trying to say. And and and, it's, and the great the great thing about that is. It's the reason why we read like the reformers or we read people from different generations or different contexts. Because you know what? People in a different context can see things that we don't see. Yeah, it's good. And so, you know, you bring someone from like the, the great thing about having missionaries. You bring a missionary from like overseas and they come in and they tell you or someone from overseas and they kind of go, the American church is materialistic. We're like, oh, we didn't even know. We, we were so see that. right. But once they say it, you got to go, oh, mm. here's how all of these Bible passages we're just in complete violation of. Yeah. And it takes someone from outside of our culture to see those things. One of the things that's really hard for people to understand, though, is that within America, there are cultures. Right. There's black cultures, right. which are different than Asian right. American cultures and Latino cultures and white cultures. Right. And people just don't want to own that and understand that our cultures can help or hinder Bible interpretation. Mm-hmm. There is no culture that has a unique insight into all truth, which is why we need each other across culture. Yeah. And across time to together discern the mind of Christ. I love that. And then together you begin to see a bigger picture of the multifaceted glory of God that you can't see on your own. Yes, it's it's almost like God said that we need one another. (laughs) It's almost like God said that. (laughs) It's almost like he thinks. And and what I was saying about that, and people can get, it doesn't mean that we can't know anything or that we can't be Christians or that we can't like follow Jesus. It's just that our Christian lives are enriched. I cannot Mm. talk about, I'm from the South. Even coming to the Northeast and the Midwest is radically different because in Alabama, it's still plausible that everybody's going to become a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, There's still Christendom. But then you go to Rochester or when I went to New England and there's like, no churches anywhere. Mm. <laughs> and you can't just like assume like as a part of small a talk. Yeah. And how did that affect you? And I need someone from that part of the country to help me understand how sometimes even as a Southerner, I can make assumptions about Christianity yeah. um, and what it means to evangelize effectively. So, yeah. for example, in the South, at least when I was there, I've been gone for a long time. It's mostly about reminding people about stuff that they already knew. Like mm. They were Christians, but they had a bad experience. So we had to bring them back. Yeah. Here. You get like from a southerner, like real heathens, <laughs> like real. I don't know I don't what know. who Jesus yeah, is. I don't like, know what if do I mean? think God is real. Yeah, like, yeah. We're in the south. We're like, okay, I know your pastor was mean to you, mm-hmm. and they were judgmental, and they like made you wear dresses instead of pants, right, right. or you had to wear suits and you wanted to wear jeans. Right. right. But that's that was our evangelism when I was growing up. Yeah. But here it's like, who is Jesus? Like, what do you mean, who is Jesus? Wow. He's the Son of God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just different. Yeah, starting from a totally different place. I wanted to ask you a question about your New York Times opinion piece, um, a recent one where you said this. It was called Why Christians Must Fight Systemic Racism. You write, 
I remain puzzled as to why discussions of racism and injustice stir up so much venom from fellow believers. They do not simply disagree. They are angry. I agree with you. That is true right there. Why do you think Christians are reacting with such vitriol? I think that there's a lot of different things going on. One is um, people think they, things are tied together to people that, that shouldn't be tied together in churches. Mm. So one of the things that happens is if someone who, let's just say, is more theologically progressive or even not a Christian at all says it, then sometimes Christians think, well, the only thing that I can do is fight it. Mm-hmm. And we think that, like, truth is partisan. Yeah. And so if one group says it, then if my group doesn't say it first, so they don't agree, then I'm going to go to the other side. Wow. And so they think that acknowledging that racism exists in society and that it affects the lives of people, not just interpersonally, but in structures of society, mm-hmm. is like the road to liberalism mm-hmm. and then out of Christianity. Gotcha. And so they're not just um, fighting this idea they're fighting what they perceive to be the implications of the idea Interesting. and what I want and but the other thing is a lot a lot of times our, our identity are, are, is tied up in our nation yeah and so acknowledging the brokenness of the nation could sometimes lead them to think that that means there's nothing good about it therefore mm-hmm. like this thing they put their pride in is kind of bad and one of the things I have to say is like we should really like take our like cues from the Old Testament. Yeah. And like in the Old Testament, like the sins are just there. Like what Israel did is there. The idolatry, the sin, the injustice, the cruelty, it's all there. And it's literally written in the Bible. Right. And so there is like, and, and you even see when you get to the New Testament, um, there's these these um this idea, even Jesus talks about um, you know, he makes some criticisms about Israel and he goes they said our descendants were never slaves they said that in the, in the Bible hmm. one of Jesus' opponents and Jesus is like I mean like that's a clearly false reading right. of the Old Testament they were right. clearly slaves right. but what it was is there was a part of them that couldn't really process the entirety of their history hmm. and so one of the things you have to be able to do is not acknowledge perfection not acknowledge kind of the greatness or specialness through moral perfection hmm. but through the struggle to become something wow and so I think that what makes a miracle special is not that it, is, it has always done what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, but it's the place within which the disinherited peoples of the world have struggled for justice. Hmm. And so what makes it special is the fact that Sojourner Truth did what she did here. Right. Wow. And so then you can begin to wrestle with complicated legacies. But I think there there is a genuine fear. Now, and the other thing that has to be acknowledged, and this is the reason why there has to be some nuance. Everyone who talks about structural racism, some of those people do have deconstructive agendas. Sure. And they do think that Christianity is in, you know, inherently misogynistic and racist. And mm-hmm. the, the solution to the problem is um, to like to leave the church or right. the church to become something different. Right. So that is there. What I want to say is the solution to that criticism is not to deny reality. It's like if you wow. go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that you have cancer. The doctor could be Republican or Democrat. But if the scan says cancer, <laughs> you need to have right. treatment. Right. And so like, <laughs> so I, like, I want to say, no, no, no. Like, here is the disease. Mm. Now, I'm going to give you a, di- a different treatment. I'm going to give you the treatment of, of, of what Christianity teaches. That's good. And I really think that, and this is the hard thing. 
we think, and this is where all of this is going into the like the educational arena and like what students can and can't learn. There's too much information out in the world. We can't control it. Yeah. And people are going to know the failures of this country and the failures of the church. Right. They're going to find out. You can pass whatever. It's called Google. <laughs> like we're passing it's out all, there. Yeah. We're passing all of this stuff in <laughs> higher education when like, and we, I'm not saying that students should be taught anything. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying like, we're doing all of this stuff, but this stuff is like on TikTok. Right. Right. <laughs> and so, You're not be- hiding from it. <laughs> so the best thing to do is to say the church should lead the way in talking about it. And so we can give them godly solutions because the students, if you don't give them godly solutions, they're going to take an ungodly solution. Mm. And so what I think is that we have to learn to not be afraid, face these issues, trusting that it's not the end. Yeah, that's really good. That's such a good word for us and for the church, Dr. McCauley. Okay. You are the host of the Disruptors podcast, right? And if I have this right, this is where you have conversations on how fidelity to the gospel disrupts the status quo. Yes. Talk to us about that. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's related to what I was saying earlier. So there's two ways of disrupting. One is to like turn over the tables and walk out. Mm. Like this is a broken system and you kind of say the church is corrupt and you run away. Done. Yeah. But sometimes the most disruptive thing that you can do is to actually stay. But here's the other thing. To stay with the hope that the church can become that which the scriptures depict it as. Mm. So what I'm saying is it's easy to become cynical yeah. and say the church is corrupt. The Bible is, you know, not God's inspired word to us. And let's just go and do whatever we want to do and make up the truth for ourselves. And that's one kind of disruption. But another disruption is to say, no, precisely because of what I see in these texts, I feel like God is calling the church to be more. Wow. And so you do that, but here's the thing. When you do that, you upset people. Right. Because they would rather you leave so that they can demonize the issue. Yeah. So it's the staying that's hard. Mm. It's the staying and saying mm. we can be better than what we currently are is is the most difficult part. And I think that's the hard part because really people think this is a debate between kind of Christians and non-Christians or conservative Christians and progressive Christians. That's actually not what happens. Yeah. What happens is the people who are proximate to them are the ones who they yell at. And so like it's the people who are who are staying. That's like true. the people who are gone, they don't even talk to. Right. They're yelling at like people like me who are saying like in. why are you still here? It's like cuz the Bible says we got to be here. And so um hmm. it's really about the disruptive power of long-term commitment. To, to more accurately reflect. And the, the, the reason I use the second part of it is I'm not saying stay and like destroy the church or turn it into something else. Stay with the clear intention of saying, I believe the scriptures point in this direction. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm going to call the people who claim to believe this Bible to do this thing. Yeah. If we want to say we don't believe the Bible anymore, then, okay, you go and do that. Right. If you want to convince me that the Bible doesn't say this, then do that. But you can't just say, well, I don't like the implications of this biblical idea. Therefore, I'm going to push back on it. Yeah. So I'm saying that the disruptive thing is to continually say, here are the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Here are what God calls us to. I don't care what the politics say. I don't yeah. care how these ideas cluster on the left and the right. Yes. We have to do them. Oh, it's so good. And so that's what I would say um, is my form of disruption. It's the prophets. Yeah. 
Right. The prophets came, and we didn't, and I know we're running out of time, but the prophets came, and they didn't just tell Israel the future, like one day the Messiah is going to come. 90% of the, you read the prophets, it's like, hey, all of this stuff in the law, you should do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. They, every now and then there's a prophecy, but even the prophecy is rooted in the Bible because they said, okay, God's going to judge us and he's going to send us to exile, but we know God's faithful, so that means he's going to bring us back. Right. So even the, the future prophecy is rooted in their understanding of God's character based upon his word. Mm-hmm. And so the prophets then, they go to the church over and over again. Well, the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel, and later on the church, it says over and over again, be who God called you to be. And the amazing thing about that is that when they did that, all throughout the Old Testament, be who God called you to be, mm-hmm. it infuriated the people. Wow. So people are going to get mad at you yeah. when you tell them that what you're doing is unbiblical. It's not who God called you to be. And who God called you to be. It's yeah. the same thing. Like Jesus, yeah. Jesus just comes in quoting scripture. I mean, like. Yeah. In, in, interpreting scripture to them. Yeah. And they resist him. Stephen, it's the same thing. So like all of this time, when you bring the Bible and the scriptures into people's lives, you're confronting them with the power of God. Hmm. And you can't be neutral to that. Right. You either got to repent or you got to try to stone it. <sighs> yeah. Oh, Dr. McCauley, I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but thank you. So we'll have to have you back on the show for sure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your time. You can learn more about Dr. Esau McCauley and his books at EsauMcCauley.com. You can connect with him on Twitter at Esau McCauley. Thanks again for being here. So grateful to have you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Brian, I thought we would have a conversation about, I don't know, a good topic, an encouraging topic, but maybe a difficult topic as well, and that is the topic of forgiveness. Mm. Um, all right. You're a pastor. I am. When you teach on forgiveness, what are some of the main teaching points that you uh, preach? Yeah, A, I'm going to go A, 1, B. Right, because that's what you do, yep. A, it's forgiveness is difficult. Mm. Like, we can't make this seem flippant. Like, oh, you should just forgive people. So we want to talk about that. Uh, B, we we want to ground forgiveness into the forgiveness that we have been shown in Jesus. Like, this is not just go forgive people. This is, um, you know what, we... We forgive others out of a response to the the way God has forgiven us in Jesus. Mm. It was undeserved. Yeah. It was like that. That without that, it feels it can feel unfair. So important. And yep. uh, and so I think that's important. And what did I say? A, B, and C. Uh, I would say, um, and this one becomes hard to unpack uh, because there's every story is unique. Um, but I do think forgiveness needs to be uh, presented in a way that when you forgive another person, in many ways, you're doing it to bring healing to yourself mm. and not to them. Like you're not letting them free, right? Like yeah. it, it might have that purpose, but there is as long as you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, that's um, that's that's affecting you probably more than the other person. It's and, oh, go ahead, Brian. No, so I'm just saying forgiveness becomes almost 
Uh, we all just think of it as like, fine, I'll let them off the hook. That's not what it is. In many ways, you're letting yourself off the hook. Mm. And that becomes hard. I guess the last thing I would say, Aubrey, too, so this would be D, when talking <laughs> about forgiveness is there is a difference between forgiveness and like a restoration of a relationship. Yeah, that's good. So there still can be, I can forgive somebody and still not be in relationship with them and still set boundaries yep. that say, I don't ever need to see yep. you again. Uh, for, I think a lot of times we think that forgiveness means that uh, next week I have to go out to dinner with the person who's really hurt me. That's not what yeah. it is. Uh, and so I would I would make sure to those points. So those are a couple of mine. Any come to mind for you? Well, I, I bring this up because and, and I'll answer that question, but because Beth Moore posted something on Twitter about forgiveness that really um, kind of emphasizes what you just said about how it's not just about us. Um, or I mean, it's not just about the other person. It can be about us as well. She said this, nothing is more unforgiving than unforgiveness. It prematurely ages, makes us sick, sore, mean-spirited, and self-absorbed, makes us unpleasant to be around. Our bodies turn into vessels of bottled up bitterness spewing mm. on everybody. Forgiveness does everybody around us a favor. And I thought that was so interesting because I don't think we often think about that communal aspect of forgiveness, that our unforgiveness mm -hmm. actually impacts the people we're around as we become more bitter, bitter and self-absorbed and closed up. But the reality is, as we hold on to unforgiveness, it does change us in really negative ways. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I the difficult part, I would, I would just to answer your question I would affirm what you said, that forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is so difficult, especially when you have been really, really hurt by someone or if they hurt you again and again and again and again. And I think that matters, that forgiveness is costly. Like forgiveness mm. is not cheap. And this is why it's so important, like you said, Brian, to ground our forgiveness in the forgiveness we've been shown by God through Jesus, yeah. Yeah. because that was not cheap either. That was costly forgiveness, costing his own life in order to save our lives. And so I think yeah, sometimes when we can't forgive, when it's so hard, that's one of the beautiful things about our union with the spirit of God is we can just go, okay, God, I literally do not have it in my power to forgive this person. I am hurt again. I am frustrated again. I am mad for again. And so, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to forgive them in my own power. Instead, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a sip, a, a dip in your pool of forgiveness. Mm. And, and I'm going to ask you to help me forgive because I can't do it without Ooh, you. And I, I think good. that's a beautiful thing about the spirit of God is that Agreed. he will help us forgive when we can't do it on our own. I think it's so important what you said that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. And there are some relationships that it's not safe, it's not healthy, it's not godly for you to be in relationship with them again. But certainly you can let go of the debt that they owe you, right? Um, yeah, especially yeah. the emotional debt. And that's part of the freeing nature of forgiveness. And then I think another important aspect, Brian, is that forgiveness is not a feeling, now, sometimes there are feelings of peace and joy that come from forgiveness, but ultimately forgiveness is a choice, right? Or it's mm. a godly work in our lives. And so we may not always feel like, oh, I'm so, I really want to forgive this person. It's so beautiful. Like we may just not feel it. The emotion may not be there, but we can still 
before the Lord released that person from what we yeah. think they owe them. And then sometimes the feeling follows. Yeah. Yeah. Can you go back and, uh, cause I think such an important point about forgiveness is, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean relationship. Like there's still boundaries. Like how do you counsel? Cause a lot of times it is men and women. I was about to say a lot of times it's with women, but I think it's, you know, a lot of times women take the abuse, right? Yeah, and certainly. So how do you counsel people as to this is how you forgive, or this is what forgiveness looks like, but here's still the boundaries you need to have. Like, how do you walk practically people through that? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important question. And I also think it's a case by case question. So yeah. of course, you know, I, I won't share too many details, of it, but I'm sure Brian, you as a pastor have walked through, there have been women in our church who have experienced abuse from their spouses. And Kevin and I are quick to say, move out, separate, get space. And ultimately, Mm. that's actually the loving act because you're no longer allowing your abuser to continue in their sin towards you, right? And I hate to even say it like that because then it means you have some control over what they're doing. But I think sometimes um, abused women, abused men can often feel so guilty, like if they leave, they're going to make it worse. But actually an act of love, an act of forgiveness is setting that boundary and getting away. And then I think sometimes just that space too helps you forgive and helps you. This is, this is what I would say in order to truly forgive, you have to know and name what you're forgiving. And if Mm. we allow ourselves to continue to be abused or to be in toxic relationships, then we're not actually naming things that are true. We're living in deceit, right? And so you have to be able to say, this is wrong. This is evil. There is something to forgive or else it's that cheap forgiveness that actually isn't true. But it, it certainly is a complicated thing. What do you say, Brian? I think you talked about it really well. I don't have much to add. I do think that um, it's just you, people out there need to hear this. Like, you know, someone has really hurt you or let you know. This doesn't mean forgiveness, like you said, is not like I'm going to forget. The old forgive and no, forget, right. I think, is a really bad uh, saying. And that, that's not what this is. But there's still you get that feeling of bitterness mm-hmm. and kind of like this weight around your own neck that lack of forgiveness has uh, that, that you really need to think through the biblical uh, answer to that is forgiveness uh, rooted in the forgiveness that you have been shown in yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's good. Well, we hope you feel encouraged to be open to forgiveness and the healing that that can bring to your life. There's something so powerful in forgiving others the way that we've been forgiven. And thanks for joining us today. We hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.